the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 17. When the sound hits the walls. The Hyde Street Studios and the San Francisco Sound. Talking with producer John Montoya. Our guest today is producer and award-winning filmmaker John Montoya. He joins us from his office in San Francisco. Hi, John, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, and I'm really pleased to have been invited to speak with you and your audience because I, I love San Francisco. I love San Francisco history. I love its music. I have been in and out of San Francisco since I first landed there in 87 and I'm happy to still have my feet on the ground. Well, John, please take a couple of minutes to tell us about your career as a filmmaker. I started at San Francisco City College, where we actually studied on film, and we were using upright movieolas to edit our 8mm film and our 16mm, and we were thrilled when we finally got a flatbed editing machine to to cut the 16mm film. So I was raised in film in San Francisco, and the first semester I got an internship with a Palo Alto producer, and we produced a documentary film on homeless youth, and I felt like I was in heaven because we ended up doing post-production at Fantasy, courtesy of Saul Zantz, Uh and so our post-production was completed there with Oscar Award winners. This was 1989 and 1990, and being a film student, I was, wow, this was easy. I'm suddenly in a major studio, major independent studio, and working with people that have won Oscars in audio, et cetera, doing our post-production. And that was probably as easy as it ever got. And I continued working with this Palo Alto producer, Charlotte Byers, and her husband, Bob, until 2002, when I finished the last film that I worked with her as director, our own road, which won a, a bunch of different awards and was on KQED and KCET and other public television stations. And it's now currently in collection at the Academy Film Archives. So that for me is a, a big honor. And it joins another film that I produced, which is about San Francisco history, along with Julia Quarry and Vicky Finari. We produced Live New Girls Unite, which is a San Francisco historical type of film, and that's also in collection at the Academy Film Archives. I did a bunch of work in between 1989 and, well, today. And I'm just, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. My company is called Telling Visions Unlimited, and I was inspired by Imagine Entertainment, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. The first film I saw of theirs was Closetland, and... When I saw that, that gave me a lot of confidence that I could make films because it was a great idea encapsulated in a very one location, a couple of actors, really great story. And I thought, that's all you really need to get an audience to really pay attention to what you're doing. And if I can do that with the writing and simple filmmaking, beautiful cinematography, which as if you've ever made a film, you know that all of those things don't always come together at the same time, in the same rooms, in the same week or decade even. But if I can do that, then I could probably survive as a filmmaker. 
and somehow, some way, just continuing to put one foot in front of the other and collecting a lot of people around me because film is a collaborative endeavor. Without great teams, you really cannot you cannot produce anything. So I focus a lot nowadays on just team building, finding good ideas with great creators that have good ideas and then finding teams to kind of corral the idea and get some forward movement and go on from there. Well, this is a very good segue into my next question, which is your latest project entitled When the Sound Hits the Wall is a 10-part docuseries about the fabled Hyde Street Studios located at 245 Hyde Street in San Francisco's Tenderloin District since 1969. It was founded by Wally Hyder in the 1960s, and the studio hosted many of the rock and roll greats of the 1960s, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Creedence Clearwater, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Herbie Hancock, and The Headhunters, as well as Crosby, Still, and Nash, among other greats. Tell us about Hyde Street Studios and how the idea for this docuseries came together. It's interesting because the producer from Palo Alto, one of the first places he took me to was Hyde Street Studios. And I remember walking through the doors, and this is 1989, so not all of the platinum or gold records that were there then, because they've added more, were were on the walls. But I, I remember seeing all of these iconic artists and records thinking, my God, this is such a relatively small place in a really colorful neighborhood, the Tenderloin, as you know. Yes. And all of this magic came out of here. And I, I was really left speechless. And I remember walking through the studio and we picked up some tapes of some voiceover that she had done with her narrator for one of her earlier projects and we left, but I was kind of speechless, and we were walking out on the street afterwards. She said, what did you think? And I said, much of the music that I've grown up on is on the walls in there, and it's in one spot. And I couldn't believe how all of these artists could have come through there over a 15-year or 10-year period of time and produced such really, really iconic music that really touches everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read in an article the other day that there's, there's, not, there's not a whole lot of people on planet Earth that haven't been touched in some way by the music that has come out of there recently or back in 69 through the 70s, 80s, etc. You know, it's interesting when you refer to Hyde Street Studios as a special place, a magic place. You know, when I think of big recording studios, of course, I think of Los Angeles or I think of New York. And, you know, San Francisco, we always punch above our weight in so many different uh, spheres. But that studio and what came out of that studio truly was magic. I think 1969, 1970, there were between the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Creedence Clearwater. Just in that one year alone, 69 and 70, there were, there were multiple hits that were coming out of there. What do you think the magic of that place was, John? What I've read is that there was no big record label that was controlling the recordings there. So artists were able to come in there, hang out, 
be who they were, feed off the other people that were recording in other studios. There's a really famous story about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and they're doing the song Teach Your Children. Mm -hmm. And they bring in, I think it was Jerry Garcia from another studio who was there to come and do some work on that song. And that's the type of thing that was happening. I spoke with Susie Foote. She was one of the first female engineers. And she talks about that, how there was just a community of artists there. It wasn't about capitalism or making gold records or billboard hits. It was about these musicians and these singers and these writers coming through there, collecting with each other, meeting in the kitchen there or meeting in the hallways and coming up with really, really great ideas and treating the recording as, as artists. We hear the term recording artists, but they were there as artists first. And that's the message we got from Susie Foote. They really loved what they were doing there, and it, it really came out in, in the sound. And again, there was no, I think Capitol Records was there, or CBS Records, but no record company was controlling the recordings. And I think that says a lot, because when you have some accountant or accountants or someone like that thinking about the music as a commodity and not as a work of art, I think you'll get very different results. And the music that came out out of there at, at most periods of time, it, you can really hear the artistry in the recordings. So essentially, Hyde Street Studios, it came down to this unique combination of great creativity and willingness to share and cooperation among these great artists. And I guess they, they were at early stages of their career, so their creativity was was still in formation. So they hadn't they they hadn't been jaded or come to think of I've got to protect this, I've got to protect that. I mean, there was there was a, a willingness to share and a you know kind of a an explosion of creativity which fed on others' creativity at the same time. A unique moment in time. Yes, and it continues to do that because artists will come through there, even producers. There's a producer there in one of the studios who came from, I think he was at one of those important music schools back east, and he was there and studied for a while, but he came specifically to Hyde Street Studios because some of his musical influences recorded there, and now he's recording he emceed an event we had with the Headhunters at the Guild Theater in Menlo Park on the 26th of August. And the music he's producing as an independent, either with himself on his Thursday night shows on YouTube or in his group, Otis McDonald, mm -hmm. the music is, it's funky. It's, it's really, <laughs> really funky. It's, 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 Almost, it, it's hard to describe when when you get music that you can feel coming from the pulse in your wrist. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of music that this this producer is producing in his studio. And if you watch his his show on on Thursday nights, you you can see that because the the music really does literally. If you watch the his YouTube show, his move his bodies are moving to the beats. Mm -hmm. it, it's almost like the tips of his hair. Are, are moving to the beats and dancing much like you would see the, the sine waves or whatever waves those are on a, um, one of those audio machines where they, they show the waveforms. Uh -huh. But it, it looks like that when he's, he's in the studio making his music. But he's, he's one of a collection of great 
artist producers that are there because of the history. We came up with the title when the sound hits the walls because walls between those walls was a, a really big theme. We kicked around a lot of different titles, but literally when, when the sound hits the walls and when it hits your eardrums, the, the music, a lot of the new music in the studio that's being produced really does impact your, your, your entire body. Mm-hmm. And if you can hear a smile in the audio, that you're, you're going to hear not just smiles, but you're going to hear joy. You're going to hear that funk. Uh-huh. You're going to hear that, that rock or that punk. You're, you're going to hear it because the artists or the musicians or the engineers, producers, all of them put together, it, it really does touch all the nerve endings in a person's body. John, tell us about the event that you just referred to with the Headhunters. And of course, the Headhunters, I'm sure most of our listeners would know this, but the Headhunters were, still are, Herbie Hancock's group. And of course, the Headhunters and Herbie Hancock, of course, recorded at uh, Hyde Street Studios. Tell us about the event when you brought the, the Headhunters together down in Menlo Park just a couple of weeks ago. Tell us about that event and how was it to have this iconic group back together on stage here in the Bay Area again for the first time, I guess, in a few years. It was a lot of orchestration to work out uh, the deal of bringing them out to California. They're currently working on a 50, 50th anniversary tour. Our producer, uh, con- creative consultant, Chris McGrew, came up with this idea that we could bring in legacy artists, offer them some recording time. We pay for it. The project pays for it. And the artists walk out with their masters. And as if you paid any attention to music over the past five or 10 years, artists keeping their masters are a real big deal. Mm-hmm. So we started with that. We raised money internally to bring them out. Chris worked out uh, the contract with, with the, the, the Guild Theater in Menlo Park, which is really, really a fantastic place. At the last minute, as we're crunching our pennies together and and wondering you know how to make it rain chris and another gentleman from the studio said oh we know someone at this hotel the bay hotel bay san francisco and maybe we can approach them and and film them at the hotel and get them into the project and that it happened Uh it was like like magic like if the music gods wanted this to happen (laughs) because we have recorded we have a live recording of the headhunters playing on stage and we worked out a deal with them that we can use it in connection with our documentary and we will be once we negotiate their what their take will be and that will be done because that was the initial idea from the outset we will then put that up in pieces or in the documentary or try to let people see it because the magic that's created by, by Bill Summers at one part of the show towards the end is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I was floored watching him do his thing up on stage by himself. And then Mike Clark is a drummer is just some of these people. It seems like the, the instruments were, were born with them when, <laughs> when they were born because they're the intuitive nature to which they all jam with each other. Mm-hmm. It was really unbelievable. It was a great show. A great crowd turned out. Everybody loved it. I loved it. And the week before to make things just a little bit more complicated when we were planning is they were in the studio 
And we filmed all of that, too. They were in the studio recording a new record. The, the magic that happened that week, and we've got it all on tape, so or in computer files. But it's so beautiful and, and, and so unique and so natural, because I've seen the dailies from some of the recordings, and it's almost like the gentlemen don't even know there's cameras around, because they, they don't react to the cameras. They're so into what they are doing that it, it really comes out in the music. Mm-hmm. And the, these gentlemen, the headhunters, really did create magic. And Chris McGrew, who orchestrated all of this, he's in the band Seal Party, which opened for the headhunters. And Seal Party's one of the groups that's coming out of Hyde Street as well right now. Their music is unbelievable as well. And they, they're seasoned professionals, so the music and the writing, the melodies all come out like they really love what they're doing, like they really serve the music. John, tell us about the planning for this 10-part docu-series. That's a a huge undertaking. Will it consist of interviews, historic footage, some current performance? Tell us how each one of these episodes will unfold, or will each one be different? Each episode will be different, but they they will have some thematic type of elements and the visual elements that are definitely uniform. We have a director, his name is Albert Lopez, who comes from a company that does pre-visualizations for some of the big Hollywood block blockbusters. So him and his partners, they get scripts and they previs things. They make digital versions of these films and then cut it together. And Albert's an editor and he works with the, the visual artists, but they, they study things down to the word in any line from a script. So he came up with this idea, and again, walls is the theme. He came up with an idea that we would project images from music videos that were made for a lot of the music, even if it was just people in the studio. And we projected them. He projected them onto the walls, onto the surfaces, onto cases of records or drum heads or uh, symbols. And we caught these reflections of these images off the walls and off these other surfaces. And they are really beautiful. And if you do go check out our site, whenthesoundhits.com, you will see some of these images in the B-roll. And... Albert, again, he's, he's very, very visual, and it looks really great, and it worked. We didn't know exactly what it was going to look like when we added a projector to our budget. And I, I said, okay, let, let's just see what it looks like. We're, we're going to do it, and I want to see what it looks like, but we're not going to say no. We're going to let our director, we're going to trust our director mm-hmm. to, to what his vision is. And when I first saw them, when I first saw the, the four-minute promo, which is on our website, I, I was blown away. And I thought, because I'm looking at other music documentaries, mm-hmm. and I wonder why nobody else, why is nobody else doing this? Mm-hmm. I saw clips from another music documentary that's coming out, and there's visual effects, but there are colors around the body and colors around the guitar, but there's, there's no mix of, I didn't see any mix in their trailer, of course there could be, of, of what Albert's doing. And it's really, really beautiful, because we really did want to make 
the walls talk. We've tossed around titles like if the walls could talk, they uh-huh. would rock. And if the walls could rock, they would talk. But we wanted the walls to really tell part of the story. So Albert has done that. While we're on the technical side, tell us about the fact that uh, Hyde Street Studios still has a lot of that vintage equipment. I, I read that, that you still have the Telefunken a vintage 1955 U47 microphone that was Frank Sinatra's favorite. Just to give our listeners a sense of, you know, some of the vintage equipment that's uh, that's there at the studios, in addition to the latest equipment. Give us a sense of, uh, you know, for our, our technical fans out there, give us a sense of uh, the lay of the land from the engineering point of view. Yes, the, the story's told that when, I think it was Bill Putnam came through there, they designed some of the walls, some of the rooms to get certain sounds. The acoustics were designed. And then, yes, they've got, they've got this board and I don't know the pronunciations of all these words, but they've got this board in there that some iconic records have been made on and people still want to come through there and record on that board. It's the, the, the Neve or the Nev. And yes, those, those microphones as well. The one you, you referenced, I've, I've heard about that one. It's, it's legendary. But we've also got new microphones that were shipped to us by a company. I think it's AEA Ribbon Mics. And they've been using them in the studio the past couple of weeks. And Chris sent out an email to all the team, said, Matt, I want to keep these. I want to keep using these. Can we talk to them to, to get these for a little bit longer? Because people love them. And so we're getting to test out new technology as well. Of course, if you're an engineer and you're, you're, you're that kind of person with that kind of makeup that just loves the technology, playing with the gear is an awful lot of fun mm-hmm. and uh, because you can get different sounds, different tones, and the engineers and the producers really like that. And, and the Hyde Street has the new and the old from the boards to the mics to some of these consoles, which probably still even have tubes <laughs> and <laughs> amplifiers, things like that, to where you can... You can get any type of sound you want, and you can get it in not entirely analog, though. I've heard there's a two-inch tape deck in there, but you can get the sounds generated from as close to where they started, where where these sounds came from originally, once you put them into the digital software, et cetera. But you can get them as pure as you can at the studio from old to new Uh and... They, they really practice that. Again, a lot of these producers and engineers are, are really into what they're doing. And again, still, there's no, no re- recording company or music distributor in there saying, no, we need the sound. We need it to be three minutes and 18 seconds, and it's got to sound like this or like that, and it's got to be this tempo. There's none of that there. You've got a bunch of different producers and artists still doing their own thing, and they, they love it. I've been in there and I've been in some of the rooms and I'm listening to the recordings that are happening as they're unfolding and being layered. And it's really, really beautiful to watch artists create their art with no real agenda other than enjoying what they're doing and creating great art for the sake of art. 
I can't wait to see the series. And talking about the series, of course, there are going to be 10 episodes. And each one of these episodes is going to be, is going to be a, a magnum opus uh, in and of itself. What's your time frame for, for this uh, docu-series? How long do you think it's going to take? And of course, you, there's a lot of moving parts in terms of different artists that you want to be in contact with. What's your time frame, John, for, for pulling this off? That's a really good question. <laughs> my my company with four other or five other production companies finished a film just this past August. The final sound mix was, was finished this past August. I got the script. We're in 23. I got the script late 2021. But this film won't even come out until 2024. Uh-huh. So, and it did it will premiere in film festivals first, but before it gets any type of release, it could be pushing early 2025. These projects seem like they happen overnight, but when you're in the actual grains or you're, you're in the the path, walking the cobblestones of any, whatever path it is, these things take, take a lot of time. We are editing now in Mexico city, our first big cut of the film of the 10 episodes we are doing string outs of multiple episodes with the footage that we've already accumulated. So we're stringing out up to, I think the first four episodes now, and we should have a really good portion of a mixture of those first four episodes to show at NAM in January. But it's going to, let's say we finished the first couple episodes in 2024, we will be putting stuff up on the website mm-hmm. under When the Sound Hits Cinema. So people, if they want to check it out, can check out portions of what we're doing as we're doing it. But we're looking at 2025 at the earliest start getting episodes out. And John, up to this point, what is the what is your greatest work, greatest achievement in terms of filmmaking, and why? When I was a child, I grew up in Los Angeles County, I used to go to museums. We The schools would take us to the L.A. County Museums, and I would think, wow, this is great stuff, and I like to draw. I got a C. I got a C in first-grade art class. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I, I need to get better because I want to be on these museum walls. <laughs> in year 2000, I produced a couple of documentaries, again, with great teams of people that were both shown and I think it was 2001, the summer of 2001, two of the films showed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And that, for me, to be able to sit in the museum there and for let them to let me in free, I didn't have to pay. <laughs> I said, I'm John Montoya. And they said, oh, you're one of, oh, come on in. It was just really nice to be able to get in for free, watch my film at the back of the theater and watch people react. But I had two in that particular series one of them is in the permanent collection at the New York City MoMA. And then the other film, which was Live Nude Girls Unite, which is another, again, San Francisco historical film, that's in collection at the Academy Film Archives. And th- those things there, even though we didn't make a ton of money, the films were well-received and the critics liked them sufficiently. But when you get into a curated collection of films, it's just... It's really gratifying to say, you know, I didn't waste my time. Mm-hmm. And that for me is really what it's all about is I, I want every minute, not just of my life, but every minute that, that we end up in an edit with an edit. You, you want those 
frames down to the frame. You want those frames to really matter. I don't know any filmmaker when they're chopping their film thinks about, Oh, that frame could come or it could go. They, they really do. When you look at the editors or the directors think about, no, that frame has got to go or no, that frame has to say, and when you stay and when you're talking about 24 frames per second, that's a lot of frames in 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes. And to be that dialed into your craft says a lot about what these folks are doing at the director and the editor level. But having my films, several and some pretty good collections, I told a friend of mine, you know, I can quit now. <laughs> but then he said, hey, hey, John, I got this idea about Hyde Street Studios. Why don't you do that? And that's to answer that first question a long time ago. That's how that started. A friend just brought it to me and it snowballed from there. Well, John, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about this docu-series that I can't wait to see? And I'm sure you're going to have a huge audience, not only in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but throughout the United States, just given the importance of the San Francisco sound. So what are your closing thoughts about this docu-series that you're furiously working on? You mentioned we're doing 10 episodes, which is true. And when you do... 10 episodes, that's a lot of filming. That's a lot of cameras and camera people. We, we are going to be even using all of the footage and putting it up on our website. And we really want to get this out to the audience as quickly as we can. Of course, we're not going to give away the film on our website, but we will be in our When the Sound Hits the Wall cinema, putting up clips from the different studios, the different producers, so people can follow along the journey as if they were one of us. We're, we're calling it like, come and be a vir virtual producer with us and sit in, see some of these sessions, see some of the, the behind the scenes camera work, when producers are producing and artists are doing their thing. And that, that to me is really exciting because... When you're doing something in the long form or the short form, you've got to set benchmarks. And emotionally, you've got to set those same types of benchmarks to keep yourself motivated to keep going. And for me, this idea of the cinema that will be on our website when the sound hits, give me that boost and hopefully give our team that boost. And then also start to build the audience and build their curiosity of, of what the final 10 episodes are going to look like. John, so please tell the audience the name of the website, also your X handle, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. But let's start with your website. The website for the film is whenthesoundhits.com. And our social handles are there, but I believe our Instagram is when the sound hits the walls. It's at when the sound hits the walls. And we're slowly but surely building our audience there. And all of our, our Facebook is, is linked to our Instagram X. I believe it's linked to my telling visions unlimited account. That's where it was the last time. And our, that website is tellingvisionsunlimited.com. And you can find out information about when the sound hits the wall there, as well as some of the other projects that I worked on in the past with social handles there as well for the various projects we'd start with the website when the sound hits the walls and then of course your own corporate website which is tellingvisionsunlimited.com correct and it's when the sound hits.com we've started calling the project when the sound hits just internally and that's extended through our, our website 
and we somehow left out the walls. But when the sound hits, because that's like when the music hits on the one, James Brown style, when it mm-hmm. hits on the one, that's what we were thinking when we shortened the name there. It's brief, and I think it can plant itself in your memory when the sound hits. Well, John, I want to thank you for joining us today. I really have a sense of some great passion and energy and drive as I've listened to you for this past half hour, and I'm sure that our listeners will too, and I know that that's going to be translated into this 10-part docu-series, When the Sound Hits the Wall. So again, John, thank you for being with us today, and we look forward to catching clips of it as it's on the websites that you've given us here, and uh, and again, look forward to having you back when, when the project is complete. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to speaking with you again and your audience. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 443. Listen to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, and join our audience that spans 60 countries. Feedspot recently cited us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.